Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 203rd episode of the Nauticast, titled Fighting Fire with Fire, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, John 7, in which the Fens attack Castle Black, but are wiped out. Hooray! Oh, wait, Eager dies too. George just can't let us have a win. It's a tragic day for redhead lovers everywhere. And is that not all of us, truly? <laughs> truly. Our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows, anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our patron, John the Giant, who asks, do you think anything important will happen at Castle Black besides John coming back from the dead? Which is a good question. Castle Black has been a central setting, obviously, through a lot of the series. We're coming back to Castle Black. We came back to it in the last John chapter. We're back here with a vengeance in this chapter. But uh, I feel like uh, John dying and coming back might be the last big plot point to happen there. What do you think? Am I missing something obvious? No, uh, I really kind of agree with you. I'm not sure what, if anything, important would happen at Castle Black. Um, I do imagine the others are going to march on the wall, but I still feel like the big northern battle will be at Winterfell. It is where winter falls. Uh, so, so I kind of view them just kind of <laughs> kind of bulldozing through the wall because we already got our big wall battle set piece with Mance Raider. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially reading ahead to the next brand chapter we're going to cover uh, next time out, um, you can really tell George is putting some work into setting up the Night Fort, um, which is, you know, going to be where Stannis theoretically sets up. You know, he may never make it there. <laughs> He's got a lot of ground to cover and there's a lot of snow on the ground and there's heading the wrong way left. right now. Yes, it's true. Um, but you can definitely see that maybe in his mind that he wanted to set this setting up for a place to return to later in the saga. The only thing that I think would maybe be interesting, because I do think the wall is going to come down and come down more comprehensively than it did in Game of Thrones, the TV show, like not just like a little bit of it comes out. Like I think the whole <laughs> fucking thing is going mm-hmm. down. So I think it would be interesting in the end game or rather the postscript of the story. Um, if there is a connection between what we consider the Northern Kingdom and the land's north of the wall like if there's no wall separating them uh castle black would still be in a great spot to put like a town or a village um because it's on the king's road so if people were you know if there was more interaction between the people who were formerly north of the wall and people who were formerly south of the wall it would make sense to have a settlement in the area of where castle black is obviously most town is in within earshot of it um so you already have some infrastructure there so if life returns to normal in westeros following the defeat of the others and probably daenerys targaryen there is a chance they <laughs> might build a pretty decent town on the site that Castle Black is at, is my final answer. I like that a lot. It goes into stuff about the settlement at the gift that we've talked about before, the seeds kind of sown for that over the course of the last couple Bran and John chapters. And uh, when you mentioned the King's Road specifically, it be, I love the idea of the King's Road like proceeding out over the remains of the wall, especially because John is, you know, a secret king, maybe a king who never comes into his ground. So the fact that it would go out to where he's living the rest of his life is kind of symbolically kind of perfect. The King's Road beyond the wall. The, the, exactly. They got, exactly. got branding right there. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. And yeah, like you say, Molestown, most of it is, you know, below ground. I don't think we ever really find out if the Thens destroyed all that stuff. I don't think they did. So that's kind of a, an easy model for it right there. That makes perfect sense. And it would be kind of great to have, like, the kind of the prison colony atmosphere of Castle Black replaced by something a little more uh, uh, consensual, I guess. <laughs> I, I guess that's the word I'm looking for. 
So thank you so much to John the Giant for the question. If you want to ask us questions we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our $10 and above patrons get benefits including asking us questions, exclusive episodes every month, and early access to our regular episodes. But we are here today to talk about A Storm of Swords, John 7, so let's go ahead and leap into the synopsis. They woke to the smoke of Mole's Town burning. Mole's burning? Ugh, that's got to smell terrible. John watches the smoke rise and thinks that, if nothing else, he prevented the Fens from just killing everyone at Castle Black in their sleep. It's an open question whether or not our favorite bastard is going to be able to get anything else done, though. His leg still hurts like hell, he's leaning on a crutch, and he is just barely keeping himself from drowning in opiates. Ah, the American dream. (laughs) I can fight. He insisted when they tried to stop him. Are your legs healed, is it? Noise snorted. You won't mind me giving a little kick, then? I don't know, Donal. Would you mind if I challenged you to arm wrestling? Aw, too soon. John says he can still fight, and Donal admits he needs every man who knows how to stabby-stab-stab the bad guys. John thinks of Arya, Needle, and the pointy end. If only she was here. She killed the Night King. Wildlings would be child's play. Donal stations John as an archer atop the King's Tower. Hint, hint. John stares down at the King's Road, hint, 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 and imagines the wildlings attacking. Eager it will be one of them. John knows that she shot him and killed that poor guy at Queen's Crown, but he can't stop flashing back to her naked in that cave. All he can do is hope she doesn't come here. Oh, she's gonna come, all right. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm out of control. Other watchmen are preparing for battle atop the other towers of Castle Black, although they are outnumbered by scarecrows dressed in black. Maester Aemon came up with them in the hopes that they would fool the Fens into thinking the castle was still fully garrisoned. Nice try, anyway. Maybe the blind guy doesn't realize how awkward it looks when the scarecrows just stand there and don't move. If only this was Wizard of Oz, we'd have ourselves a real scarecrow army. John has two actual, living, non-scarecrow brothers with him on the King's Tower. Deaf Dick Follard, an experienced watchman, and a boy from Old Town called Satin, who is about as far from experienced as you can get. He is nervously messing around with the Scarecrow's clothes, as if the Wildlings will leave them alone if he gets the fits just right. But Donal Noy says Satin is good with a crossbow, and as far as John is concerned, that's all that matters. John thinks back to when he first arrived at Castle Black, and asked his Uncle Benjen, remember him, how Castle Black could be defended without any walls. It can't, his uncle told him. That is the point. The Night's Watch is pledged to take no part in the quarrels of the realm. Yet over the centuries, certain lords commander, more proud than wise, forgot their vows and near destroyed us all with their ambitions. Lord Commander Runcel Hightower tried to bequeath the watch to his bastard son. Lord Commander Roderick Flint thought to make himself King Bay on the Wall. Tristan Mudd, Madmark Rankinfell, Robin Hill. Did you know that 600 years ago, the commanders at Snowgate and then the Night Fort went to war against each other? And when the Lord Commander tried to stop them, they joined forces to murder him? The Stark and Winterfell had to take a hand, and both their heads, which he did easily, because their strongholds were not defensible. The Night's Watch had 996 Lords Commander before J.R. Mormont, most of them men of courage and honor, but we have had cowards and fools as well, our tyrants and our madmen. We survive because the Lords and Kings of the Seven Kingdoms know that we pose no threat to them, no matter who should lead us. Our only foes are to the north. And to the north, we have the wall. Well, that worked out, John thinks. Now their foes have gotten around them to the south, and the lords and kings of the Seven Kingdoms have abandoned them. At least for the moment. 
Donal Noy, de facto commander of Castle Black, has had to make some tough decisions. Thankfully, he made them correctly, telling his men that the Wildling's win condition is taking the gate, and so they need to build a wall around it, made of basically anything that isn't nailed down. The civilians who fled Molestown after John warned them are making their way up to the top of the wall itself. John thinks that the better strategy would be to attack the Fens on the road with 50 mounted men. Only one tiny itty bitty problem with that, they don't have 50 mounted men. Because Bowen Marsh makes much worse decisions than Donal Noy, and he took most of the garrison with him on a wild snark and grumpkin chase up and down the wall. We are the garrison, John told himself, and look at us. The brothers Bowen Marsh had left behind were old men, cripples, and green boys, just as Donal Noy had warned him. He could see some rustling barrels up the steps, others on the barricade. Stout old kegs, as slow as ever, spare boot hopping along briskly on his carved wooden leg. Half-mad Easy, who fancied himself Florian the Fool Reborn. Dornish Dilly, Red Allen of the Rosewood, Young Henley, well past 50, Old Henley, well past 70, Harry Hal, Spotted Pate of Maidenpool. I love it, you gotta love a team of underdogs. It's just like the Brotherhood, except for the whole prison colony part. Now, not all of the underdogs love John. Some think of him as a turncloak, some are prejudiced against bastards, and some are just enemies he's made along the way, like the bully Rast, who thankfully doesn't have a rape factory at Craster's Keep in his future, like his counterpart on the show. Meanwhile, Donal Noy is bellowing as loud as his forge at the Molestown men setting up the barricade. John remembers some advice Ned gave him and Rob. In order to be an effective battle commander, you need to be able to yell louder than the battle itself. Donal has armed all the able-bodied men among the, males, among the Molestown refugees, and some of the women too. Satin is cold, coming as he does from literally the warmest place in Westeros, at least outside of the Dornish Desert. He's only used to ice and wine. Mmm, sounds good. Podcast on pause, everyone. Gotta take a wine break. John thinks back to his time in the Frostfangs with Corrin Halfhand's special ops crew. Now that was cold. This might as well still be summer. They're interrupted by Owen the Oaf bringing buns, cheese, and onions as a potential last meal. Mmm, that also sounds good. Another break time. Union rules, you know. Maester Eamon has sent out birds all over Westeros begging for help, and Owen hopes that King Robert will come to save them, which would be great if he weren't very inconveniently dead. Then again, that didn't stop his kid brother Renly from showing up at the Blackwater. Regardless, John thinks no one's going to show up in time to save them from the Thans, so this will be their battle and theirs alone. Everyone passes the time in their own way. Pacing, or praying, or napping. Yeah, I know which one I'd choose. At sunset, Owen comes back with bread and mutton for dinner, after which John orders Satin to get the fire and oil ready, while he walks down to bar the door, thinking it'll help his leg to get some blood pumping. He immediately regrets this decision and barely makes it back up. John watches the stars come out, thinking of the wildling constellations, until the wildlings themselves show up in the flesh. Satin pisses himself when the horns blow twice, but John, very gallantly, ignores it. I'm frightened. Satin's face was a ghastly white. So are they. <laughs> I know who I'm voting for as Lord Commander. John gives Satin some more useful advice, knowing that Deaf Dick doesn't need it. John pulls out an arrow, thinking of Theon of all people. Yeah, sure, he may have supposedly murdered your supposed brothers, but he was one hell of an archer until Ramsay got hold of his fingers, and everything else. John sees shadows moving across the yard. He shoots one down, but misses the second. He spots another group, knowing from their elaborately decorated shields that they are not Fens. This time he makes his second shot as well as his first, recognizing his buddy Big Boyle only after missing him. Time begins to blur as the battle fever sets in. John keeps looking for Stir, desperate for an enemy he can actually hate instead of his almost friends. 
The wildlings advance, setting the common hall on fire and climbing the armory. Dick hopped up on the crenelle for a better shot, jerked his crossbow to his shoulder, and sent a quarrel thrumming toward the torchman. He missed. The archer down below him? Didn't. Follard never made a sound, only toppled forward headlong over the parapet. It was a hundred feet to the yard below. John heard the thump as he was peering round a straw soldier, trying to see where the arrow had come from. Not ten feet from Deaf Dick's body, he glimpsed a leather shield, a ragged cloak, a mop of thick red hair. Kissed by fire, he thought. Lucky. He brought his bow up, but his fingers would not part, and she was gone as suddenly as she'd appeared. Whew, probably my favorite part of the chapter right there. Every word is perfect. John sees that the stables are on fire as well, and a bunch more fens are charging up the King's Road to attack Donal Noy's barrier around the gate. John and Satin start shooting at them, with nothing but easy targets to choose from, until some wildlings notice where the arrows are coming from and break into the King's Tower to attack. John cuts the first one down and calls for the boiling oil. He and Satin pour it down on the fens. John is horrified by their shrieks, and Satin looks like he's going to puke. Looks like there aren't any easy enemies here after all. John tells Satin to puke later, if there is a later, because it's all going wrong. The Fens are swarming over the barrier, killing everyone in their path, including Rast. Now his watch has ended, such as it was. The rest of the Watchmen flee or die. John and Satin fire as quickly as possible, but they're too outnumbered to do much good. John recalls Ned saying that nothing gets a soldier's bloodlust up like an enemy on the run. Stir himself finally appears, smiling for once, and approaches the gate. All is lost. Until, it turns out it isn't. John orders Satin to fetch torches, and they start lighting up fire arrows. Donalnoy sounds his war horn, and John and Satin start firing at all the oily rags and barrels and all the other highly flammable shit Donal stored beneath the steps. The fires race up and down, and the wildlings are trapped. John watches them die one by one, until the stair itself gives way and takes the rest of them with it, stir included. Afterward, John and Satin wander the ruins of Castle Black among the dead and dying wildlings. He found Egret sprawled across a patch of old snow beneath the Lord Commander's tower, with an arrow between her breasts. The ice crystals had settled over her face, and in the moonlight it looked as though she wore a glittering silver mask. The arrow was black, John saw, but it was fletched with white duck feathers. Not mine, he told himself. Not one of mine. But he felt as if it were. When he knelt in the snow beside her, her eyes opened. "'John Snow,' she said, very softly. It sounded as though the arrow had found a lung. "'Is this a proper castle now? Not just a tower?' "'It is.' John took her hand. "'Could,' she whispered. "'I wanted to see one proper castle before—before before I—' "'You'll see a hundred castles,' he promised her. "'The battle's done. Maester Eamon will see to you.' He touched her hair. "'You're kissed by fire, remember? Lucky.' It will take more than an arrow to kill you. Eamon will draw it out and patch you up, and we'll get you some milk of the poppy for the pain. She just smiled at that. Do you remember that cave? We should have stayed in that cave. I told you so. We'll go back to the cave, he said. You're not going to die, Egret. You're not. (laughs) Egret cupped his cheek with her hand. You know nothing, Jon Snow, she sighed, dying. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, John 7. What did you think of this one, sir? So uh, after a couple chapters of red wedding navel gazing, <laughs> we return to the world at large, a world that hasn't stopped spinning. 
news hasn't reached Jon Snow yet, and it won't matter much if he doesn't survive this attack depicted in the chapter. It's an action-packed one with heartbreak at the end. George letting us know that there's still a lot of stuff happening here and now, and the wall rises up to meet the moment. Even though John wasn't at the Red Wedding, his story changes so dramatically now that it almost feels like he was. You can trace John's character development in terms of shifting genre stakes. In the first two acts of A Storm of Swords, this was an espionage story, as John went undercover among the wildlings, trying to fulfill the orders he got from Corrin Halfhand before killing him, and we had also had the, uh, the tragic romance angle with Egret. Now it's a war story, the war story of A Storm of Swords, in the way the Blackwater and the build-up to it was the war story of A Clash of Kings. The Blackwater was told through multiple POVs, Tyrion, Sansa, very briefly Davos, but the Battle at the Wall is told entirely via Jon, because unlike the show, Sam hasn't returned to Castle Black yet, and Davos doesn't take part in the actual fighting. It's all on Jon, and part of what makes his chapters some of the best here in Act 3 of A Storm of Swords is how George combines the excitement of the rising big-picture action with Jon's own character arc. He's back among the Watchmen, and has to carve out his own place here even as part of him still belongs among the wildlings attacking the place, an identity struggle that only gets more complicated when Stannis shows up out of nowhere and offers him Winterfell. The only criticism I have of these chapters is that if anything they move too quickly. This chapter builds perfectly to Egret's death, but then George has to immediately move on to Mance's larger attack on the other side of the wall. You could say though that this reflects how Jon feels. Events are outpacing him, and yet just by trying to keep up, he winds up in charge of the Night's Watch at the end of the book. So like we said, the Red Wedding retrospectives are over. The story limps on, much like Jon Snow on his makeshift crutch to start this chapter. We'll be charging full steam ahead by the time we reach the end of A Storm of Swords, but right now we are still recovering from our wounds from the massacre a few chapters ago. Jon's physical pain can stand in for the one borne by the reader. John, though, of course, is in mental anguish, too, his heart in conflict with itself as the free folk south of the wall make for Castle Black. John's feeling pretty down over his inability to contribute, but he's already done some good, raising the alarm in Molestown, sending those moles scurrying to safety, mainly back to Castle Black itself. But the real conflict is, of course, the egret nears, as does Grig the Goat, Quart, Big Boyle, and the rest, his lover, briefly, and his comrades, briefly. Memories of Egret are bittersweet, one part arrow in the thigh, one part horny in a cave. <laughs> John's just trying to keep his dick down by chanting, war crimes, war crimes, over and over again. <laughs> the situation is so bad, and John is so conflicted that, yeah, the only comfort he can take is that, hey, we won't all be massacred in our sleep. That's a win right now. But it does matter that John has already saved civilian lives, because that's the essence of his philosophy as Lord Commander. And it's what separates him from both Stir and Jano Slint. It's the only principle that John can feel unambiguously good about. The only thing he can do that doesn't make him feel compromised in some way. It's very telling later when he says he wants to fight Stir because he's easy to hate. John is yearning for a return to the simple moral binaries about the wildlings. And you could say this is hidden bigotry that has always been waiting to surface, but given the pro-integration policies John pursues in A Dance with Dragons, I think there's something more. It's about how the pressure cooker of war makes demands on people. Demands they might not respond to under other circumstances. John would have an easier time fighting if all the wildlings were like Stir, brutal authoritarians who betray the idea of a free folk they act more like lords from the south. 
he wouldn't feel that loss the way he would with some of the others, especially Egret. But while Egret is much more likable than Stir, she also poses an immediate threat to civilian life in the area. We saw that with the guy at Queen's Crown, which John flashes back to here. John brings up Arya in passing here, thinking about how he told her to fight with the pointy end. Well, who would she be fighting in this situation? The world of Winterfell has no room for Egret, and it doesn't matter how much he loves her. He'll be forced to choose, because he stands between her and people who can't fight back. The irony, of course, is that this is exactly how Mance feels, that he is trying to save the wildlings, save his people from the White Walkers, and the wall is functioning as a pen, keeping them on the slaughterhouse floor. These are the stakes of the big multi-stage battle of A Storm of Swords. In A Clash of Kings at the end, it was about who would sit the Iron Throne, with soldiers and civilians alike caught in between houses Lannister and Baratheon. Here the lines are blurred between avenging armies and oppressed peoples. Mance's followers include both raiders and refugees. The Night's Watch are enforcing the inequalities and divisions embodied by the Wall, but many of the Watchmen are themselves victims of those same structures, especially the underdogs currently defending Castle Black. The Wildlings are on the run from the Others. The Watchmen are here under direction from the Lords of Westeros. But neither the Others nor the Lords of Westeros are actually here. It's just the Wildlings and the Watch. Two forgotten peoples condemned to wage this wasteful war under the shadow of Armageddon. As at the Blackwater, the moral ambiguity is the point. The sense that you don't know who to root for. We hated Joffrey in A Clash of Kings, but Stannis was making some dark decisions in service of his new fire god, which ironically rebounded on him when Tyrion unleashed the wildfire. Here, George is constantly toying with your sympathies, grounding you in the desperate last stand of the Night's Watch, without ever allowing you to forget the humanity of the wildlings and the essential unfairness of the position they're in. The best way forward is some kind of negotiated settlement, but that won't be easy, as we'll see when John confronts Mance near the end of the book, and it's especially not easy to put a structure like that together in the middle of an ongoing civil war south of the Wall as we'll see in A Dance with Dragons when Jon is in the ridiculous position of balancing the interests of the Watch, and the Wildlings, and Stannis, and the entire human race vis-a-vis -vis the others, and also his own stupid human feelings. But you can't even get to that extremely difficult job without having leaders in place who are prepared to negotiate. Stir is just not here to do that. He is here to wipe out the Watch and give Mance the wall, because Mance wants to negotiate with the Northerners from a position of relative strength. We see the opposite play out in A Dance with Dragons. Once Stannis breaks Mance's host, the survivors have to make huge concessions to him for the price of crossing the wall. So even if Jon waved the white flag here and gave a speech about how they all have to stand together against the Long Night, Stir would tell him to shove that flag up his ass. And Stir sends his own unmistakable signal at the start of the chapter. Burning down Molestown, the smoke rising high enough for Jon to see it. As Jon thinks, Stir didn't have to be so blatant about it, Sure, he's lost the element of surprise, but what's the point going this far? To prove that he can, basically. To tell the Night's Watch that he can take his time, he can let them see him coming. Because their day is done, and his day has finally arrived. Remember, Stir was trying to become King May on the Wall before Mance stared him down. He's ambitious, and he wants to show off. Fire is always the sign of cultural change in Westeros. What does Maester Aemon say? Ice preserves, but fire consumes. The first men came over the narrow sea with fire, as did the Andals, as did Aegon the Conqueror and Melisandre and eventually Daenerys. Jon is always tormented by being on both sides of these divides, because he has more than one identity. That's part of why R plus L equals J resonates. 
John is the crossover point between ice and fire. He only exists at all because these cultures came together. And now he knows how that feels, more than ever, because Egret is both his sworn enemy and his soulmate. He was wrong to leave her, he was wrong to love her. There doesn't seem to be room for both. It's a zero-sum game right now on a personal level as well as a political one. All John can do is pray that Egret turns aside, that she takes one of the empty towers they saw in the gift, because here, he thinks, there is only death. The Night's Watch is where individuality goes to die. As Mance told us, it's where we try to reduce the tension of all that cultural crossover by creating one monolith in the name of duty. But John only met Egret during his duties to the Watch. He still can't escape or repress his humanity. As Maester Eamon told him, love is the death of duty. The Scarecrow Sentinels make for a nice symbol of the Night's Watch. A trick to make the Watch seem more than they are, but in truth, it's no real shield. It's probably how John feels about this defense in general. The best men either died on the Great Ranging or were sent out scouting by Bowen Marsh. What's left is the thinnest of ranks, the greenest of boys, and the oldest of men. It's a clever trick to stuff and arm the spare cloaks, making the most of what materials and weapons the Night Watch has on hand. It's resourceful and a good lesson to John, whose tenure as Lord Commander can literally be defined by making the most of what little you have. John notes Satin's fraying nerves, or maybe they're his own, a moment giving voice to the popular adage that war is interminable boredom punctuated by moments of terror. It's evocative of Peregrine too, talking about how the anticipation of battle is the worst feeling, the deep breath before the plunge. Speaking of Satin, hey, it's Satin, and a whole bunch of other new guys, some of whom who even make it out of this chapter. Deaf Dick Follard, Owen the Oaf, and a half dozen other brothers get introduced here. George is keenly aware that he has to repopulate the cast of Castle Black after he cuts so many of them down north of the wall. That won't stop him from cutting down the new recruits either, but John is going to need a supporting cast for his travails in A Dance with Dragons, especially with Sam and Eamon departing the castle very early on in A Feast for Crows. And as John will later point out when he names some more new guys, half of them don't like him very much. Some of them didn't like him from before, for his noble air and his arrogance, and others now presume him a turncloak and a wildling. The cast of characters George is trying to replenish are as much John's enemies as they are his allies. John is placed at the King's Tower, which could, of course, be foreshadowing for any <laughs> any of many future crowns John might wear. Mm-hmm. But the analogy that I want to make is to Stannis. John describes the King's Tower as neither the tallest or the strongest, but it's tall enough and strong enough, and goddammit, people like him. Okay, that's not true about Stannis. <laughs> what John actually says is that it's well-placed besides the wall. That feels like a totally apt way to describe Stannis's position at the end of this book. He's not quite the strongest of the kings, but he's the one John's got, and his position atop the wall is strategically advantageous for the myriad of political battles occurring in the north. It is not long after this description that John is thinking of how the kings have forgotten the Night's Watch too. Benjamin Stark returns in this chapter, but sadly, just in John's memories, he's not able to provide any new information. Well, he kind of does, at least to the reader. He runs through a long list of overly ambitious Lord Commanders who reached for a star and fell, or more often, were put down by the Stark of Winterfell. 
Benjen is explaining the lack of walls to the south with his anecdote, but it also shows how valuable the Starks have been to the Watch. And when Benjen is listing some of those ambitious Lord Commanders, you got to imagine the same names maybe flashing through Bowen Marsh's head when they when he murders John, who is about to march on Winterfell with wildlings at his back. Benjen's point about Lord Commanders is very similar to that of Maester Pylos from the last chapter. Men are men. Sir Davos was referring to the wildlings back then, and now Benjen Stark makes the same point regarding those who command the Night's Watch. John lays out the geography of the battlefield before it happens, so we can better understand the resolution that will come at the end. Essentially, a makeshift barricade of stores and supplies were stacked up to defend the gate, and especially the stair, all of which is configured to collapse if ignited. Necessary provisions, as well as the villagers of Molestown, have been moved to the top of the wall, a little indication of what's to come, the people north of the wall, the people south of the wall, and the rangers on the wall are all going to be melding together into a single polity of sorts once Stannis arrives and tries to agitate the wildling passage south of the wall. We see that starting as several of those Molestown's refugees are being armed with spears and crossbows, which also include a couple of the sex workers from the village. John's vision of an NWO, the Night's Watch Order, involves gender parity in a way not seen before amongst the Black Brothers, thanks for his time with Egret and the Wildlings. Donal Noy, meanwhile, is shouting commands at the new recruits, who John notes as he has the Lord's voice, with the obvious point that Donal Noy is no Lord. But the ability to pr- project and perform power is quintessential to ruling, something we've seen from Rob Stark to Tywin Lannister. But for some reason, I'm thinking about Roose Bolton now, the guy no one can hear. Does he have a personal shouter on the front lines? Or does he have a terrifyingly booming voice that he just never uses? <laughs> or could maybe his lack of projection actually doom him on the battlefield, be it against Stannis or whoever in the Winds of Spring? I love the idea of Roose like, carrying someone around who does the shouting for him. It's, you know, <laughs> decent job, not much in the way of benefits. One thing I really love is John telling Satin to eat when Owen comes by with hot cross buns. The very real excitement surrounding battle will have you running on nerves and adrenaline, and you may ignore things like hunger, thirst, and rest. It's important to keep up on those things, especially before a battle. While death is the most likely outcome for the Night's Watch here, often forces that are routed are scattered to the wind, fleeing in every which direction. If that were the case, you don't want to be fleeing into the wild on an empty stomach, knowing your next meals will likely be foraged for. And I also love Owen asking after King Robert, being too simple to remember that he's long dead at this point. John humors him for now, but I like that in the din of battle at the end, at the Battle of the Wall, when Stannis' army descends, John even thinks, is that Robert, when he arrives. It's the perfect parallel to the Blackwater. This time, Stannis is the cavalry that shows up to save the day, rather than the one getting hit from behind by said cavalry. And instead of Renly's ghost, like we had at the Blackwater, this time we have kind of Robert's ghost, you could say. Because for a second, (laughs) John thinks it's Robert back from the dead. And just like at the Blackwater, George stacks the deck here against the defending side, so you feel how much they really need to get saved. Part of it is just the quality of the troops on hand. These are the table scraps of Castle Black, even in the Isle of Misfit Toys that is the Night's Watch. You've got people who would never be on the front line under any other circumstances. People who are too old or too young to fight. People with mental or physical disabilities that should qualify them as non-combatants. But they're the only ones left. And George really leans into the underdog spirit of it. Like, here's everyone counted out by the mainstream of Westeros, and they're all that's left to hold the line. There's a line I love from the the great Western Rio Bravo, 
when uh, John Wayne is talking to his one friend that he has uh, from outside the town, the one character from outside the town, and uh, he's he's saying he's John Wayne is saying he has to defend the town from a bunch of a bunch of rabble rousers and gangsters, and all he has to do with her is his other friends, his kind of his his drunk older friend, his his drunk friend, and his his older friend who guards the jail. And the guy's like unimpressed and says, "That's all you got." And John Wayne just looks at him and says, "That's what I've got." And that's ex- that's exactly what uh, what John Spirit is here. This is you know not the army he would choose to go to go to war with, but they're what he's got, and they'll all have to work together. You get that that classic uh, trench camaraderie of soldiers bonding over the impossibility of their situation, wherever they're from, whatever brought them here. What they all have in common is that they are all probably about to die. So you get satin from the far, far south, a brothel in Old Town, about as different from the watch as it gets in Westeros, but John takes him under his wing in this chapter. And that's how John eases back into the Night's Watch. He has an easier time of it with these guys than he does with Alice or Thorne and the other more proudful and powerful watchmen. It's the same ragged humanity that John found appealing about the wildlings, even when he kept telling himself not to. George tempers the romanticism when John reminds us that, yeah, not everyone likes him here. He has made enemies, which will become much more of a problem in A Dance with Dragons. I always come back to the moments early in the story when Donal Noy, now John's commander, told him that while he might have felt like the underdog relative to Rob, Gren and the other new recruits were the underdog relative to him. John's whole story is built around those, those kind of telescopic moments where his perspective changes. He has come to understand the wildlings much more than he did, but in this chapter, he is fighting Thens, wildlings with their own feudal hierarchy, coming up from the south, kind of ironically the wrong direction, and they have his allies outnumbered and outmatched. The battlefield only looks the way it does because of the shifting social dynamics of Westeros. Benjen's explanation of why Castle Black is indefensible from the south has an internal logic to it, but it doesn't survive contact with reality. I can see how leaving the Watch exposed to the Seven Kingdoms prevents the tyrants and madmen Benjen describes among the Watch from causing too much trouble. You could say it's the legacy of Night's King filtered down through the ages. The Lords of Westeros don't want to give everyone they've locked up any chance to set up their own little kingdom at the Wall. The problem, as with many institutions in both Westeros and real life, is that it assumes good faith on the part of people operating those institutions. Benjen's argument only makes sense if the leaders of the Seven Kingdoms can be trusted to properly manage the vulnerability of the Night's Watch. Implicit in the construction of Castle Black is the idea that, if the wildlings ever do get over the wall elsewhere and come from the south, okay, it's not going to be a problem. The lords and kings of Westeros will be there to save the day. We have this reciprocal social contract going. But now they aren't here. Which gives the lie to the idea that we're all one great house up here at the wall, that we're transcending petty politics in the name of duty. No, now we're just screwed. The Watch is trapped in the same way they trapped the wildlings, all of them turning on each other at this great distance. That's the systemic view. But it's also important, of course, how individuals react to those circumstances. It makes a big difference that who's in charge. It makes a big difference that Bowen Marsh fell for Mance's obvious trap. And it makes a big difference that Donal Noy is in command now. He really knows what's important and what's not, which is the, you know, always the sign of a good leader, kind of in any circumstance. Donal keeps focus on the win condition for the wildlings, which is the gate. That's what they're here for. So Donal doesn't try to defend every building in Castle Black, because what's the point of that? He defends the gate, and he turns it into a trap. George very sneakily sets up the literally explosive ending of this chapter in plain sight, showing us everyone bringing up the lard, bringing up the oil, even raking kindling under the steps... But he never has John think directly about it. So it comes as a surprise to us the first time through as much as the wildlings. 
that heightens the suspense when it looks like the watch is losing, and it also makes us more aware of what a clever strategy it was on Donal Noy's part, that he really used the battlefield to his best advantage, and he turned all his weaknesses into strengths as much as he could. So they came at night like thieves, murderers, as John channels his <laughs> inner golem. Satin cops to being scurred, to which John says, so are they. He surely could have cited his father, Edward Stark, about being brave, but I do like John being blunt and using his own words here. He's going to have to cultivate his own lord's voice, so to speak. John tells his comrades to be sensible with their munitions, too. Ample supplies are not infinite supplies. Throughout this chapter, we've been doing inventory management for the Night's Watch, counting cloaks and spears and barrels of mutton and quarrels and arrows, all in service of this battle, and theoretically the bigger battle to come against Mance Raider. But this sort of accounting will carry over well after the battle, from wartime to peacetime, as Lord Commander Snow will have to ration those limited supplies across his own men, Stannis's men, and the Free Folk over the course of A Dance with Dragons. Theon, too, gets a mention here, keeping up the theme of A Storm of Swords, where whenever Theon isn't on page, the characters keep asking, where's Theon? <laughs> yeah, John doesn't even pause to think, yes, Theon, you know, the guy who killed my brothers and burned down our house. <laughs> like any soldier on the verge of battle, John needs something to cling to so he stays brave. You can only be brave if you're afraid, like you are saying about that, that Ned quote. And John also thinks of Ned throughout this chapter. Ned taught him how to yell loud enough to be heard in battle. Ned taught him how to recognize when an army was breaking. But also Theon, who betrayed everything Ned stood for. Theon's memory will do. You know, it'll help John in this moment. And it's a little reminder that common humanity exists even despite the terrible things Theon did. Let alone the things everyone says he did. Same applies to the wildlings. John looks up at the stars one last time before the battle starts, and he can't decide which constellations he sees. The ones he was raised with, or the ones Egret showed him. Neither are objectively real, of course, which is the whole point, just like with the Red Comet in the last book. It's a Rorschach blot. It reveals you rather than the other way around, which I think is a statement from George about art as a whole. The constellations stand in for larger structures we use to order and navigate the world. They're no less real for being constructed, but they're not immutable. John can harden his heart against the wildlings. He can tell himself that thinking of Egret would be madness, something that hurts too much to look at directly. But he can't unsee the things she saw in the stars. That's a change she made in him, and it outlives her. I'm frightened, Satin says, when the horns blow, and John doesn't tell him that he shouldn't be scared. He doesn't even say that, hey, I'm scared too. No, what he tells Satin is, so are they, the people on the other side. And I know because I was one of them. They are as scared of us as we are of them. Now let's go kill them. <laughs> George gets up to his old tricks, leaning on the auditory to help tell the story. He could just write, John drew his arrow and fired, killing a dude. But it just sounds so much better when he talks about the soft hiss at John's ear, the grunt of its target, and one less shape approaching Castle Black. More important than what John hears, though, is what John sees. He's able to distinguish the free folk from the Thens in the raiding party. He's beyond seeing them as just one amalgamation of peoples, but now is able to identify the smaller communities that make up the bigger whole. They aren't just a nameless, faceless mass of people to him anymore. Satin exclaiming that he got one, followed by John saying, Get another. Feels like it got a minor riff in the show, Season 4, Episode 9, Watchers on the Wall, but with Sam and Pip instead. 
Pip finally hits a target, but Sam just replies, Oh, is the war over then? No, then keep shooting. Good moment on the page, good moment on the screen. John describes the seemingly endless process of knocking, drawing, and loosing of arrows ad infinitum. It seems is the forever now of battle. It seems even the terror of battle has its own tedium. The visuals of the skirmish also seem to be an externalization of the conflict inside John, his black heart aflame for Egret. The battlefield is essentially pitch black, a void, punctuated with fires here and there, torches, then stables, and by the end of the chapter, the whole scaffolding under the stair will be aflame. So, black and fire, like, say, John and Egret, one the solemn void of the watch and the other the burning passions of the free folk. Yeah, I love the bit with John and Satin, when Satin's all proud of getting one and John tells him to get another, very clearly George Griffin on Star Wars with Han telling Luke to not get cocky. And uh, yeah, I had to read that whole bit with Death Dick's death in the synopsis because it really struck me this time through. He's built up through this whole chapter as one of the most experienced watchmen left at Castle Black. Maybe he was left behind because Bowen Marsh undervalued him due to being deaf rather than any objective assessment of his skills. John is looking after Satin the whole time, knowing that Death Dick can take care of himself. But George emphasizes how random death can still be on the battlefield and how he writes this. It's not Satin, the rookie who dies. Deaf Dick misses his shot, and the archer below him didn't. Could have easily gone the other way around. It's pure chance. It's luck. And John thinks of luck when he sees Egret's hair. Seems to work for her in the moment because he lets her go. And his own luck keeps getting worse as he misses his next few shots. John really really should have been born a redhead, like his, his Tully uh, half-siblings slash cousins. <laughs> Oh, once the stables are lit, John leads his men to better positioning, and they keep up the barrage. What do we do? We kill them. Easy enough, Jon Snow. He does know something, after all. <laughs> One thing. Athen nearly sneaks up behind them on their perch, but bronze is no match for Valyrian steel, and John cuts him down easily, while Satin dumps oil down on anyone else trying to steal their position. We are watching John command smartly on a small scale, with a small group of men holding a fortified position, reacting quickly to changing conditions and keeping his men in line, to the point of telling Satin to vomit later, after the battle. Keep those liquids in you for now, kid. Yeah, George handles the evolving stakes of the battle well as the wildlings sweep across Castle Black. Because of the small number of fighters involved here, the author doesn't have the kind of widescreen glory we'll see in the next few John chapters. What he does have is intimacy, something we'll lack when the rest of the wildlings show up on the other side of the wall and the fighting kind of happens at a distance for a while. So here we get the wildlings suddenly breaking into the king's tower and the fighting, and the fighting briefly going hand to hand. But even here the emphasis is less on skill and more the horror of the situation, as John and Satin unleash boiling oil on the fans. Some of the more stomach-churning shit in A Song of Ice and Fire is George ramping things up for effect, but using oil like this is a real-life horror. And I, I can't imagine what it must be like to hear and smell what you've just done to a fellow human being. Same with the battle breaking on the stairs. Less focus on swordplay and more on the blood dripping down the steps like it did during Ned's downfall in King's Landing, and the Fens racing up, drunk on victory, George writes. With the fire raging all around, it starts to feel like human sacrifice, especially given what happens to the wildlings next. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When John's attention returns to the broader action, he realizes the men are breaking, and there isn't even a wizened septon here to tell us about how they break. Several of his brothers were down for good, and the villagers they had armed slowly began to flee, which in turn leads to more of them fleeing. 
The swarming wildlings were focused on the step now, but the gate was also wide open to them. At this point, John tells Satan to pray to his gods, and John will pray to his own, and apparently, it all turns there. Are the gods watching Jon Snow? I don't know, but Jon Snow is definitely watching Satin, who he notes is pretty, but also quick. Jon Satin's shipping is a low-key fave of mine, and it's good to see the seed is strong in Satin's very first chapter. At this point, the Night's Watch springs its trap, before the red route gets out of hand as Jon describes it. They light the torches and light up a stock of flammables located below the step just as Steer was about to take the gate. After many wildling poochies, we are finally at the fireworks factory as the raiders get lit up. Wind and fire do the work, and no matter where the wildlings go, they die. George, not one to forget the name of his saga, gets ice into the death business as a chunk of the wall comes crashing down on the now-broken wildling attack. The wall indeed defends itself. George does an expert job here manipulating the audience in terms of both information and tone. All through the chapter, he holds back on what Donal Noy's plan actually is, right up until the fire arrows start flying. He lured the Fens up the steps and then set them ablaze, mirroring the burning of Molestown by the wildlings at the start of the chapter. We get this rush of realizing what it was all leading to, the glorious spectacle of part of the wall itself falling away, the relief that John and Satin will live, and then George mentions, just in passing, that the refugees from Molestown were not told about the plan, and so some of them might have been caught on the steps. And you can justify that, maybe not telling them maybe they would, I don't know, race up too quickly and give it away, but it's still a cold-hearted decision made by Donald Noy, who was generally a sympathetic character. Those civilians fled here to find safety against the Thens who were burning down Molestown, and now, here some of them are being fed into the fire anyway. It's not out of sadism or even indifference, but an all-consuming focus on what it takes to win, and a willingness to sacrifice anything it takes to get there. It makes this victory more melancholy, especially because the main force of wildlings is still on their way, and extra especially because of one particular death on the wildling side. Yeah, I really like what you were saying there, um, because w with the previous Tyrion chapter, Tywin Lannister was talking about the need-to-know basis and why he didn't tell everyone yeah. about the plan for Good the point. Red Wedding. And it seems, you know, really kind of vile and sinister and, you know, these Machiavellian machinations by Tywin Lannister. But here, Donal Noy is basically doing the same thing. And I think we've been trained to love Donal Noy. I mean, besides this, exactly. <laughs> um, there's really nothing <laughs> against his name. But yeah, he did. He did kind of, you know, keep this from them. And, it, you know, it has its own downside. We get one last seed of the John Satin ship as the sex worker from Old Town holds John closely as he limps around looking for Egret. He does eventually find her in her last throes of life, pierced by an arrow that thankfully isn't John's. In a way, this is the end to a big chapter of John's life, of his story arc. In this moment, the boy is being killed and the man who will lead the defense against Mance Raider is about to be born. After the th thermonuclear emotions of the Red Wedding, we have a small-scale explosion of sadness to end John 7, Egret at least seeing a castle before she dies. John tries to tell her that she'll see many, many more, that she'll live, hell, that they'll go back to that cave. But the chapter ends the only way it ever could. You know nothing, Jon Snow. That small scale is really what I think makes this resonate. This moment belongs to no one but them. There's no one watching and pointing and saying, see, see, we knew it. John's a traitor. Look at him have feelings. Even the battle ending around them is a minor event compared to what's coming next. Mance's arrival and then Stannis's reshaping the Game of Thrones. 
everything here shrinks down to just the two of them. Like nothing else matters. Which is how love feels, but it's also how loss feels. And George makes you feel it with the beautiful imagery. That, that mask of ice across Egret's face like she's becoming a white walker, a very literal other. It's a perfect visual touch for such a tender and delicate death scene. All quiet whispers and soft touches, like someone just turned down the volume on the battle scene. Even before Egret brings up the cave, that's what this feels like. When they were down in the earth with fire and water. No one but each other to get lost in. Egret said she never wanted to leave that cave, because she knew, even if she didn't want to say it at the time, that the war would drive them apart again. Now that seems like obscene folly, given the love that still connects them despite being on opposite sides of the war. Practically speaking, they never could have stayed in that cave, or that watchtower, or anywhere else along the path that led them both right here. But that dream stands in for lost chances, the lives they could have led. John persists in his delusion to the end, unwilling to face the reality that the identity he has come home to demands that the woman he loves die in his arms. Even if he was able to save her life here with Maester Aemon, what, is, what would happen to her? Does he really think the Watch is going to let her stand up and walk away, like Walter Frey said about <laughs> Rob? You know nothing, as she says it here, is just, it's just the saddest possible context. Remember how that started when Egret first started saying that to John? It was flirting. Mm -hmm. It was a way of saying, yeah, you're just totally out of your element, little boy, but you're cute. You're cute how you know nothing. Maybe I'll keep you around. And now, now it's a farewell. Now it will always be the last thing she ever said to him. It's, it's, it's beautiful, beautiful stuff. And even though it comes right in the wake of the Red Wedding, right a couple chapters after it, it just makes your heart get ready to break all over again. Yeah, you can kind of see why the show made this a key part of the Battle of the Wall. Yeah. I think just the emotionality of this is why they combine these two battle events, um, because there isn't that same kind of emotional heartbreak that you have um, with just the John Stannis man stuff. It's very exciting, and I love the parlaying between everyone, but the Egret is really, and because Kit and Rose had such amazing chemistry, it really added oomph there. And I think the show did a good job of bringing this moment to the screen in that it does kind of zeroes in on those two even in the midst of a much bigger battle i think there's literally a guy on fire <laughs> flying behind him um but, but they it, don't even notice it works somehow. exactly yeah. no that's a good point i think it suits the two mediums i think it's it works in the books to kind of focus on this here and it's almost like like a like we have the heart here and then the brain comes later then we work on logistical stuff later but the, yeah the show brings it brings it all together in that moment really well and yeah i love that it's like slowly zooming out from john holding a grid and the sound is down a little bit and it just captures perfectly that for all the widescreen terror that John has been involved in this whole episode, and in that moment, none of it's there. And even on a smaller scale, you get, you get the same feeling here in the book. So moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork, we're on the hashtag ghost watch, which we're going to be throughout these John chapters in Storm of Swords. John sends his pet dog away early in the book when they're about to go over the wall with the wildlings because he ghost can't do that. <laughs> He's not that magical. <laughs> so John sends ghost away. And then we wait till almost the very end of the book for Ghost to come back when John is deliberating over his decision about whether or not to accept Winterfell from Stannis. Ghost shows up, helps him make the decision. But until then, George has to make sure we don't forget John doesn't have his dog right now. So every so often, John has to pause and think of Ghost for, for foreshadowing purposes. So in this chapter, it comes very appropriately when he's looking up at the stars and thinking about the different constellations. That's when he wonders where Ghost is, because that's when the chapter where he sent Ghost away is the chapter where he thought about the constellations. So it, it doesn't feel too forced to make sense that John would think of his dog at this moment. 
Yeah, honestly, uh, my low-key favorite part about doing this podcast is just calling out all the times George is saying something just so the reader keeps it in the back of their minds. Like, don't forget about him. Remember, don't forget about her. John has a good boy. <laughs> Said good boy will be coming home. Yeah. We promise. Even uh, Benjen Stark kind of functions like that in this chapter as well. It's like, don't forget, he's out there. He's missing. Benjen is maybe um, the longest con of them all. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's, it's always funny how early how early George gets rid of Benjen. I always forget before I go back. It's like, yeah, it's like we're like 20 pages into book one. Benjen's gone. <laughs> We'll see him again at some point. <laughs> Moving on into a theory and discussion. As you said, this is the first time Satin comes up, and he's a minor but persistent character in John's story. So I wanted to ask, as the resident John Satin shipper, what do you th- where do you think he's going? Do you, th- do you see kind of a, an endgame for him specifically? Uh, no specific endgame. Um, leaning on the show a little bit, I think after the assassination of Jon Snow, you, you're going to have like a partisan Jon Snow camp arise at Castle Black or amongst the Watch Broadly um, with a lot of Jon's previous best friends uh, <laughs> elsewhere mm-hmm. right now, yep. uh, Sam, Grand Pip. Um, it makes sense for uh, Satin to kind of become one of the leaders of that group. Um, the show leaned on Dolores Ed and Davos Seaworth, um, who I don't think are going to be present to be able to do that kind of thing. So I think Satin is gonna, just going to be like a Jon Snow partisan and kind of be an ascendant character, maybe for the first half of The Winds of Winter is kind of where I see him. I don't have any broader take on where he's going to go beyond that, though. Yeah, agreed. I think this is, he'll play the role Davos played for the, like the first couple episodes of season six where Davos was suddenly the most important character because someone had to do something <laughs> at Castle Black. Obviously not the case in uh, the books where Davos has never been to Castle Black, never met John even at this point. So someone else has to do that. Satin makes perfect sense. He's John's squire. He's very loyal. He gets along well with other John loyalists. And I think it works... I think it works uh, symbolically, too, because while John's opponents in the Night's Watch in the books are not quite the quite the rabid, frothing-at-the-mouth bigots that his opponents on the show are, they're a little more nuanced than that. But nonetheless, I think there is something powerful that you have these kind of more conventional, patriarchal guys on the Night's Watch who are opposed to Jon Snow, go as far as killing Jon Snow, and then the kind of leader of the Jon Snow camp is this guy from old town who's treated with with disgust and his slurs are thrown at him all the time i think there's something powerful about the idea of him holding on to the the john snow loyalist group while john is is on ice so to speak while john is away while john is on holiday <laughs> it's the bit in uh, 11 chicken run when the when the lead chicken gets gets uh, locked away and whatever friends it's like you enjoy holiday ginger i was not in holiday babs i was in solitary confinement oh <laughs> nice to get a bit of time to yourself isn't it that's going to be that's going to be satin when John comes back. How was holiday? So uh, that is going to wrap us up for our episode on A Storm of Swords, John 7. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. If you haven't already, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits, including early access to our regular episodes and multiple exclusive episodes every month. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter or Blue Sky at PoorQuentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb, where you'll find me there at Blue Sky and Twitter. So my next Star Wars episode is coming out next week for all of our $5 and above patrons. It's going to be my fourth episode on the original movie, introducing everyone's favorite smuggler this side of Davos Seaworth, Han Solo. My latest Lord of the Rings episode is out for all of our $5 and above patrons now, covering Book 6, Chapter 7, Homeward Bound, as the hobbits very, very gradually make their way home towards the Shire. And next time in the Song of Ice and Fire, it's A Storm of Swords, Brand 4, in which Brand better start believing in ghost stories, because he's in one. 
I don't know if that works, actually, because Bran maybe believes a little too hard in the ghost stories. Bran has the opposite problem, really. Uh, my real problem is I made that same Pirates of the Caribbean joke three places in the Bran outline, so I'm going to have to come up with some new material. No, more. You have to use it more times. I want it every paragraph. More asbestos. More asbestos. And we're going to be having on a special guest for that episode, uh, our friend Lo the Lynx, who has done great work uh, writing their own essays, appeared on other podcasts. I had them on for a special episode once uh, last year, so just very excited to have them back for Stone of Swords Brand 4. Great little standalone chapter. We're going to have a great time. So uh, thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time for Storm of Swords Brand 4.